Welcome to New York Public Health Now, where we talk about the why so you can decide what to do. Hello, I am Dr. Jim McDonald, Commissioner of the New York State Department of Health, coming to you again from the 14th floor of the Corning Tower overlooking Empire State Plaza. And astounding to me that every time we record a podcast, it is sunny in Albany, which makes me think we probably need to do more episodes coming out of this very bleak January. I'm amazed at our ability, apparently, to influence the weather. Who needs the groundhog when you have us making every day sunny here in New York? That is fabulous here. Today, good to have Joanne Morn, our Executive Deputy Commissioner here at the New York State Department of Health. Hi, Joanne. How are you today? I am doing great, and you're right. It's nice to see the sun out. Glad to be here. And glad to congratulate you on being appointed now as the Executive Deputy Commissioner, no longer in the acting role. And so so great to have you as our partner here at the Department of Health, helping everybody in New York to stay healthy. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor. Speaking of an honor, I'm thrilled to have Amir Basiri here, our very own Medicaid director, one of my favorite people in public health who does a lot of great work here. Amir, good to have you today. Thank you for having me, Commissioner. It's really wonderful to be with you on this sunny day. So we're going to talk about our Medicaid program. By the way, we're one of only seven states where the Medicaid program is part of the health department, which I'm thrilled about for a lot of reasons, because one of the things I love working about with you, Amir, is we get to align where we want to go in public health with the biggest item in the budget, which is you know how we spend our money on direct patient care. Uh, so it's great to have you here and great to have the team from the Office of Health Insurance Programs as a very vital part of the New York State Department of Health. Joanne, why don't you take us away with our first question for Amir? That sounds great. And, you know, let me just join in by saying really glad to be with you this morning and to learn a bit more about what you do. So why don't we start, uh, if you would, tell us about your background. Sure. Yeah. So I'm originally uh, actually from California, not a native New Yorker, but uh, came out to New York for graduate school, um, studied economics and psychology in undergrad and wanted to do more work with people. So I went to Columbia to get my master's in social work. And ultimately that led me down a policy road uh, starting in social services and working at community-based organizations in New York City. Uh, And then the opportunity to work in government presented itself actually with the Deputy Secretary for Health and Human Services, Paul Francis, who also used to work with DOH. And I really just jumped on that opportunity because my passion was always the intersection of health and human services. So that's how I got to Albany and New York State DOH. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about what you do at the New York State Department of Health. You, you lead our Medicaid program, which, you know, I'm looking out the window at the Office of Health Insurance Programs there. It's been wonderful to visit your team over there. What do you actually do over there, though? That's a great question, Commissioner. The easiest way uh, to describe what we do over at OHIP is we essentially run a very large public health insurance company. Um, it's the second largest in the country. And we have quite a large responsibility with respect to making sure providers are being paid. We're establishing adequate reimbursement rates. We're setting forth guidance and policy direction when we add new benefits or services. We run very large, massive, and old systems that need to stay operational. So the lights are on, the trains are on the track. And then we obviously are very involved uh, with our counterparts in the executive chamber and division of budget right now in the budgetary process and legislative process. But it's really day-to-day management of the program. And we have a very large team, great team, 
that does that effectively in different areas, whether it's finance, policy, uh, data, uh, analytics, or medical and dental directors. So we have we have a really wonderful team. That's incredible. I know a lot of incredible work happens across the state and with a lot of thanks to your department. If you work in public health, if you work in healthcare, you're talking about something called an 1115 <laughs> waiver. Uh, but for those who may not be familiar, what is the waiver? An 1115 waiver provides the Secretary for Health and Human Services the authority to waive federal rules that govern the Medicaid program. Um, You know, there are a lot of federal regulations and requirements that govern the traditional Medicaid program that is available to all uh, eligible residents. But an 1115 waiver lets you waive some of those requirements to test new demonstrations, new ideas, new policies, get federal funding to do that. under the guise of expanding coverage, improving access to certain services or benefits, and in our case with the recent 1115, to actually advance and address health equity and and some of the underlying health disparities in, in our communities. So it's really a wonderful opportunity that doesn't come around often. They're typically authorized um, between three and five years in cycles. And we actually have a unique structure here in New York where most of our managed care program, which is about 80% of the Medicaid program is in Medicaid managed care, is authorized under an 1115 demonstration. So when we get approval or we amend or we expand it, um, it really applies to most of the populations that we serve, which is really powerful. And especially with this amendment, you'll see in other states, they've also gotten 1115 approvals and the federal government uh, has a policy position and a research question around health-related social needs, which is something we're very passionate about here in New York and at the department. And so this is really a wonderful opportunity to be able to test whether Medicaid can effectively provide these new social services and whether it will ultimately uh, improve the outcomes for our members and keep costs either at or below what they are today. It really is interesting. You're talking about an investment in everyone's future here. And it really is interesting. Like one of the things I think about with the 1115 waiver is really emphasizing care, not just in the exam room, but outside the exam room. And it's interesting, a lot of times we talk about social determinants of health, but there's a lot of things that really do improve people's ability to live a happy life and a long life, but it's really the care that occurs outside the exam room. And it's funny, the dollar amounts are staggering, right? Seven and a half billion dollars, six billion of that is federal money. Big investment from our state in this thing Mm -hmm. to make it work. Can you walk us through some of the new changes in this 1115 waiver? Absolutely. And there are quite a few, to be honest. This is a very large and multi-dimensional waiver. But the core change and primary focus is really the addition of what the federal government is calling health-related social needs services. Those are the nutritional services and transitional housing support services that occur in the community that are not traditionally allowed to be reimbursable from Medicaid with federal funding. And we are including a suite of nutritional services from pantry stocking to cooking supplies to groceries and fresh meals to transitional housing services like uh, even paying for uh, the first six months of rent and tenancy supports to help people get into uh, supportive housing units, respite care when people are transitioning, uh, as well as K-12 
case management, social care related case management to help people navigate this very complex system that we have between healthcare and social services. You know, it's not easy to find available housing. You need help in order to do that, to understand uh, the inventory available housing, getting you into pre-stable housing so you can recuperate or get the, the medical care you need while we transition you to more stable housing. There's a number of different services that would be available, and we're really looking to leverage and test whether this model is ultimately going to improve some of the outcomes for our most vulnerable members. It's really targeted to those populations that we see as high risk, um, high need, vulnerable, underserved, where we have significant levels of health disparities and inequities, whether it's people living with HIV and AIDS or substance use disorder, or serious mental illness, people being discharged from incarceration, pregnant women and children. It's really expanding these services to those core populations. This is great. You've offered us so much information, but let's make sure I understand correctly. It sounds as if New York State has benefited from an 1115 waiver for quite some time. And there was a recent amendment, which goes to some of the details you've just provided. So when did that amendment go into effect, or will it go into effect? And based on what you've said, it seems as though it's an opportunity for us to continue to enhance and expand on health equity and determinants of health. But is that why we applied for this amendment? It's a great question, and thanks for bringing me back to uh, sort of even before this amendment. It goes back to 1997 is when we had the partnership plan, which is now known as the MRT waiver, that authorized some of these managed care authorities. And to your point, Joanne, we have renewed that demonstration several times with various federal uh, waiver initiatives and the prior waiver you may be familiar with, the district program that ended in 2020, and it was a little abrupt in terms of the way it ended with the federal administration being the Trump administration. So we renewed that waiver on March 31st of 2022, and it's in effect until March 31st of 2027. We amended that approval to incorporate these health-related social needs, the workforce, the other components of the waiver. And to your point, yes, it was always the goal to address health equity, and we've always viewed this amendment as our the Medicaid program's strategic plan to address health equity. We started with a concept paper. That goes back several years at this point. We worked throughout the department to make sure we were identifying the core health uh, equity priorities and disparities that we wanted to address. Uh, and over time, that led to the submission of a formal amendment to CMS and other states. I selfishly like to think they copied our concept paper. And there is a core theme across the 1115 waivers that the federal government is approving because they're testing something, right? So there needs to be some consistency in what they're testing, which is should Medicaid be covering these services and does it improve the quality of care uh, in a cost-effective way? We're talking to Amira Basiri, our Medicaid director at the New York State Department of Health, about the 1115 waiver, an investment in our future. Amir, we've had a really good conversation about how some of the 1115 waivers are going to affect care outside the exam room. But the 1115 waiver has got something here for hospitals, too. Can we talk a little bit about how will the 1115 waiver affect hospitals? Absolutely. In our initial application, we had seeked federal support for 
financially distressed hospitals. I think hospitals are undergoing significant, you know, organizational changes and uh, business or market dynamics from workforce costs to other inflationary costs and unpredictable revenues as we rebound from the pandemic. And one thing the federal government was uncomfortable with was the size of our request for hospitals and their there wanted to be some alignment, some what we call multi-payer alignment, when multiple payers, including Medicaid and Medicare, take a uniform approach in how they address a policy change or a financial investment. And so we landed on what is in the waiver, which is an all-payer demonstration that really seeks to keep care outside of the hospital with the hospital benefiting in the financial incentives if it's able to do so and population health outcomes are met. It sort of takes our current approach where we focus solely on an individual hospital, its financial sustainability, its specific quality outcomes, and takes a more population health view of the community that the hospital is serving and provides resources to help the hospital work with community partners to keep care outside the hospital while improving uh, core population health outcomes. You know, it's funny, one of the ways I think about defining public health is helping all the people all the time. As a pediatrician, I helped one person at a time, which was great and it's important. But one of the things I see with the 1115 waiver is really shifting us more towards hospitals coming into that model as well of helping all the people all the time, which I think is really intriguing. But I think the 1115 waiver has something for healthcare providers who practice in offices. And I just wonder, can we chat a little bit about how that might look too? Yeah, absolutely. There are a range of things uh, outside of the inclusion of the health-related social needs, you know, some healthcare providers and offices are doing screenings and assessments and referrals. That will be able to continue under this waiver. And in effect, there will be new resources for them to refer some of their patients out to get those social supports with some financial investment from the state and federal government to really improve and create those wraparound services for physicians and other practitioners. In addition, we're making a sizable investment, as is the federal government, in primary care. You know, we've fallen behind in primary care. I think the whole nation has fallen behind in primary care as a percentage of the healthcare dollar that is spent. And so we're making investments in the primary care medical home program, really trying to get that primary care focus back to the forefront of our uh, Medicaid program. And so we're going to make investments in those practices and enhancements for the adults that go to those practices, as well as children, and try and move that program to a quality-based program to really prioritize outcomes. But uh, there is a core focus of the waiver. We call it the primary care delivery system model. All that to say it's a huge focus of primary care first and how we approach sort of the the entry point into the delivery system and Medicaid and making sure we're providing holistic whole person care um, outside of the hospital and other institutional settings. So let's pretend I'm the patient. In the next three months, I go to for a primary care visit. Is something going to look different? Well, not in the next three months, but uh, I think if we were to say, let's just say six months, I don't think from a patient's perspective, it will look dramatically different. You may be asked by your primary care doctor to complete an assessment, and that assessment is really intended to identify whether you uh, are eligible for and would like to receive some of these new services and would you be comfortable with uh, the primary care physician or 
a social care provider referring you to those services. And that may look different. Outside of that, you know, there wouldn't be much impact on the patient other than learning about the supportive services they may have access to that they are currently receiving. We're trying to make this as uh, blind to the member as possible. That said, you know, providers are all in different places. Not every primary care provider may want to do this screening. They could say and tell the patient, you know, you may be able to access additional services. I think you would benefit from them. I'm going to refer you to these new social care networks. They are going to improve and provide access to a suite of services that are going to keep you healthy and outside of any higher cost setting of care. You know, so Amir, how does this fit with the Department of Health's mission to eliminate health disparities? Because that's like the top priority around here. It's, it's funny, like as commissioner, I want to set a goal that's not just worthy, but just, yeah. right? We want to eliminate health disparities across the state. How does the 1115 waiver help with that? Love that question. Um, I think the 1115 waiver fits that core mission and aims to do exactly what the department's goal is. And it starts with understanding what the health disparities are. So we don't know enough about our members as we should. Um, that starts with demographic information. A lot of the information we currently have is self-reported. It's not reliable. So we need to better understand who our members are and enrich the information about them to better serve them. And that starts with race, ethnicity, and other demographic information. And then ultimately, in terms of reducing or eliminating health disparities, starting to drill down more closely into where outcomes clinical, administrative, social are lacking, and then filling those gaps with the investments in the 1115 from an access standpoint. We know there are disparities. We know the communities where there are disparities, but we're not measuring them in the way that we should, at least not in Medicaid. And we know and want to establish baselines to improve upon, even if it's incremental at a hospital or um, primary care office or at a population basis in terms of countywide outcomes. So it really starts with measurement, Commissioner, and we don't know enough as we should. We need to enrich the data we have to better serve the members that we have holistically. It's really about outcomes, isn't it? Like really one of the things I think about is it's terrible for someone to have cancer. It's terrible to have any disease. But your outcome, your survivability, your outcome should be the same, regardless of your race, ethnicity, orientation, gender, age, ability, language, immigration status. I know I'm asking a lot, but this is the type of world we should live in where it's terrible you had a disease, but we should have the same outcome for everybody. We're getting ready to close out our time with Amir Basiri, the New York State Department of Health and Medicaid Director. Putting an 1115 waiver is hard work. We do hard things. Can you just briefly tell me, what did your team do to put this together? Because it's amazing how we get to talk about this, but we're talking about other people's hard work. Uh, it takes a village for certain. And that goes to many people who were in my seat before me in sort of the conceptual design and framework all the way to our partners in the governor's office and division of budget as we negotiate with the feds. But it's taken a very significant effort from many hardworking, dedicated folks throughout the department to get to where we are today. This is three years in the making. We asked for a lot up front. We are getting a lot in a short period of time. I know there's a little bit of consternation about that, but what I would say is we've built this to last well beyond uh, three years. 
We've built this infrastructure to be a permanent fixture in the Medicaid program. Health equity is not something that is transient from our policy priority. It's something we need embedded into how we do business and how we serve members. There has really been a lot of thought put into this. We still have a lot to do and figure out. I like to joke with the team and say, you know, the hard part's done. Now we've got the waiver. Let's do the easy stuff. Wink, wink. We're super excited, and it really creates a lot of energy. And I really must say there are some very, very dedicated people who have wanted this to happen in DOH and on my team in OHIP for a very long time. So I'm really happy they get to see the fruits of their labor and sort of that vision has come to life. Thank you, Amir. It's been great talking to you today. I do want to extend my thanks to everybody at the Department of Health who helped put this great LEM15 waiver together. It really is an investment in all of our futures. I also want to thank you for listening to us. We would love to hear from you. If you have an idea for topics we should talk about on the New York Public Health Now podcast, please let us know by email, publichealthnowpodcast at health.ny.gov. That is public health now podcast at health.ny.gov as always keep an eye out for the latest new york public health now episode on your favorite podcast player like apple Podcasts, overcast spotify youtube and google Podcasts. search by our podcast at all new york public health now or the keyword nysdoh then tap subscribe or follow button be notified when we release a new episode for the New York Public Health Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. I'm Joanne Moran. And I'm Amir Brasseri. And thank you for listening. New York Public Health Now is a production of New York State Department of Health's Public Affairs Group. Michael Wren is the executive producer and engineer with additional production support provided by Sarah Snyder, Janine Babakian, Barbara Stubblebine, Alicia Biggs, Monica Pomeroy, and Kyle Coteri. Copyright 2024, all rights reserved. We welcome your feedback. Please email us at publichealthnowpodcast at health.ny.gov. <laughs>